GM, GM, GM. And welcome to one of our inaugural episodes of the Web3 Made Simple podcast by Ziggy, where we discuss Web3 trends and muse about how it will go mainstream. We interview fellow founders and builders and tease out the insights that will help us all understand how this technology will affect our lives in the near and distant future. Today, we interview Justin Vogel, co-founder of Safari, the leading network and platform for Web3 growth leaders. Trained at Princeton and in multiple YC and Sequoia-backed startups in Silicon Valley, Justin is now knees deep down the rabbit hole. He's taken it upon himself to assemble the best and brightest Web3 growth leaders into an invite-only community called Safari. The roster is impressive. It contains growth leaders from Uniswap, OpenSea, Dune, Ledger, Unstoppable Domains, CoinMarketCap, Dapper Labs, Dow House, CoinVice, Oma Games, to name but a few. And the appetite to join is real. In the last community application round, over 800 Web3 growth leaders applied to get into their cozy corner of the internet. I kid you not, I didn't even realize there were 800 growth leaders, period. Growth in Web3 is far different than Web2. And Justin is one of the leading thinkers about those differences. So without further ado, let's kick off. Well, hey, Justin. Nice to have you on one of our very first podcasts here. As context, so the purpose of this podcast is specifically to muse about how Web3 goes mainstream. I think we're still in this period where it's very much a cottager industry, and we're all a little bit peculiar in what we're doing. Eventually, this is going to touch everybody. And so this is like a forum to think about that together. And for me, I just wanted to have some dedicated time to do that with smart folks. Yeah, and then an excuse to build relationships, etc. So I thought this would be nice. Obviously, I'm a member of Safari. We've got some shared background too. And so excited to have you here. I guess to kick off, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your story and how it led to founding Safari? Sounds good. And don't mind me if I like throw in like random sound clips here and there, messing around with this podcasting thing. So all good. Excited to be here. And I think that the topic of your podcast is awesome. So excited to be one of your first guests too. A little bit about my background. So I guess we'll start in college. I was a Middle Eastern studies major. So I've always been fascinated by communities and different cultures. And when I graduated from college, I honestly didn't realize that I was going to have to turn Middle Eastern studies into a career. And I didn't want to be a CIA agent or a professor or do one of the other random things that Middle Eastern studies majors do. So I came running back home to California, the Bay Area, which is where I grew up, and started looking for jobs. And obviously, the only thing that's out here is tech. So I naturally found myself in tech. And I started my career at a very early stage, Y Combinator startup. I was their everything else guy, as I like to say. I joined a team of three engineering founders. And so I was doing growth, I was doing product, I was doing marketing, I was doing sales for a community of developers that we had built that then turned into a marketplace later. And so my background is a little bit in doing both community building there, traditional growth marketing, some products, later moved on to a larger marketplace where I was doing, again, traditional growth marketing, some ops-led growth. That's one of your recent articles about building Philippines teams. I had that experience as well. And then finally, I built out an experimentation platform at my most recent marketplace from zero to one at 
typical kind of incentive experimentation of how to drive incremental revenue in your marketplace through experimentation. That all took me to last summer. I got the entrepreneurial itch to start my own company. I left. I started working on an HR tech company with my current co-founder. We soon realized that we weren't going to be the ones to solve hiring. So we pivoted. And so we entered Web3 and started thinking about, we were really obsessed with the future of work in Web2. We started thinking about what does the future of work in Web3 look like? Was really obsessed with DAOs and learning more about DAOs and doing DAO tooling. And that led us to realize that taking a product to market in Web3 is quite different. And we needed to learn new skills that we didn't necessarily have in the growth space. And by doing so, wanted to create a community of other people to learn how companies were growing in Web3. Because I'd say at the time, it was very much a mystery. There was nothing written about Web3 growth. We were like, how are these companies actually growing? I went through the same thing. Some of them were growing at these rates that were just mind-boggling. When did you start Safari? That was a year ago now, maybe? A lot less, actually. We started Safari in February. So February. February, that was around about the time that Axie was really hitting its stride. Those numbers were insane. Axie was hitting its stride, but also in December when we first got into the space, there was SOS and then Looks Rare and all those types of things where we were just seeing massive growth that was so much more powerful than anything even ever heard of in Web2. Looks Rare drove $20 billion in transactions in the first two months of their launch, which is just, what are we even talking about here? A lot of these other Twitters were gaining 0 to 150000 in like a month of launch. Both Web2 channels, Web3 channels, people are just driving explosive, explosive growth. And I think it made everyone on the Web2 side do a big pause. Something's going on. Nobody really knows what it is, but we've got to learn more about this. When you were decided to start a community about Web3 growth, what was your thought process? Was it, this is going to be the platform for a product? Was it, here's a way I could create a forum where I'll understand what the hell's going on here? What was the motive, so to speak? The big motivation actually for us was At the time, we had built a DAO tool, and we were trying to get in front of different people. And a lot of them obviously would ask us, like, well, which community is your DAO tool currently being used in? And we really struggled to get adoption with these different DAOs. And so we thought, let's build our own community so that, one, we can use the tool in our own community and then go to other communities and try and get them to use it as well. And two, building a community we expect will really put us in the mindset of our target demographic. And then we'll know whether we're on the right path or not. The early batch came together. We had actually focused much more on community builders than on growth leaders, though that morphed a little bit later. But yeah, we learned from the first batch. One, we thought that our tool sucked. We were like, we don't want to use this tool that we built in our own community. What was the initial tool? The initial tool was an Asana for Web3. So thinking about how DAOs can collaborate, we're really thinking deeply about the on-chain and off-chain experience. A lot of DAOs that got started didn't have tokenomics and tokens from the start. And so if you were contributing to an early DAO that was starting to form, you essentially had no on-chain reputation even. So there are a lot of people who worked for DAOs in the earliest phases, but all their efforts were off-chain. So we're thinking about ways that you could record in like a Web2 Asana 
everything that was being done and then drop them tokens to reward that work so that their work would be captured on chain either in real time or at a future point when the DAO did tokenize, but to have that be recorded. So that's kind of what we were looking at because we had joined different communities ourselves and had that experience directly. So then you started Safari and you were, I guess, trying to use this tool at first because that was part of the thought process. And then what was the experience using your own tool? I mean, I think what we really realized was there are the big DAOs that you read about, Maker, etc., And they're so large that they can just build their own custom tooling, so they don't need tools. And then there's the small early stage communities like Safari was at the time. And we just really didn't have a need for advanced tooling or any tooling. So it didn't really make sense for our size of community. As the DAO tooling market evolved, we also realized there actually weren't that many communities in this in-between zone that had resources that they could spend on a tool, but that weren't large enough that they could just build their own tools. We also started to see the DAO tooling market shift as we were building our own community. So we had this experience, right, where we had a product that had a lot of interest in zero adoption, and we had a community that was just surging in interest. So we had to kind of do the Web3 thing and say, I don't know where this community is going. Let's ditch the tool focus full-time on the community and see where this takes us. I'm glad you did. It's a great community (laughs) and I'm happy to be a part of it. So kudos to you and thank you for that. I guess related, a question is, you have managed to amass a large swath of top growth marketers into this cozy corner of the internet. Have you gone about doing this? And related to that, what did you learn along the way that you tweaked to make that process even better? So I'd say the first thing that we did in terms of how did we attract all these growth leaders is I really believe that a lot of people are doing community building wrong in Web3 when I first entered the space. There were these huge, large discords, super overwhelming. Nobody really knew each other. It wasn't what I thought a community really meant. And when I think about community, I think of an interconnected group of people that know each other. That can be a large community. Safari is now 300. But that can also be a small community too. But I think these 50,000 person discords is not really what I think of when it comes to community building. My hypothesis was if we nail the core experience and bring a lot of utility to members up front, they'll want to tell their friends and this will create this referral engine that brings more of the same. So we're really fortunate in our first batch to have top growth leaders like the VP of growth at CoinMarketCap and the head of growth at Ledger and many awesome early stage founders that have gone on to build really amazing products. And what we see is that they time and time again, bring back their friends. So we have this really high quality referral engine that has been built just by delivering on an awesome in-community experience. That's how we've continued to replicate getting more and more legit people. But in terms of channels themselves, we One, Twitter, like everyone else. My other hypothesis is I think that personal brands are a lot more effective than company brands in Web3. And so I spend far more time thinking about my personal Web3 Twitter than I do about Safari's Twitter. Sometimes I'll honestly just remix things that hit on my Twitter account and put them onto Safari's five months later. It really all stems from my personal brands, which I never had before Web3. I started the Twitter in Web3. A few thoughts come to mind. One is, yeah, it's kind of interesting how like I know the color of your cover photo 
and I have a rough sense of who your avatar is in my head. As I think across the space, do you know Rafa, the builder? Yeah. There's certain people that have these very iconic avatars that just stick out. This is totally a thing. I tweeted about this the other day, actually, because we were doing an announcement. and I was trying to figure out what would get the most engagement. Should I tweet it? We, in particular, have a few brands. And I was trying to figure out where should I tweet this from? From one of the company brands, from my personal Twitter. I opted for my personal Twitter because I thought it was the least confusing considering we're going through this weird branding thing. I was interested and I have noticed. Why do you think that is that personal brands get more engagement than company brands, specifically in Web3? I think it's two things. One, personal brands just naturally feel a lot warmer than a company brand. Even if it's a PFP, it still feels more human-like. Two, I think you also, with algorithms, you get a good jumpstart. People actually know you, and so they feel more interested in supporting your content because it's you. You're like a real person that they've met before. And in Web3 also in general, I think, as we were discussing before with the Web3 growth strategies, There's been this insane amount of growth, but there's still a very reasonable number of people that work in Web3. Web3 feels very, very small at the same time in terms of the number of professionals that are known in the space. And so I think that that's another reason why these personal brands are a little bit more engaging than the company brands, at least in Web3. But yeah, I mean, if you look at Web2, Twitter's, the people who run them, I don't want to hate, but I don't feel like they're doing a great job. It's really hard to do like corporate communications in a way that feels great and authentic. You're either like doing some really boring stuff or you're doing memes and there's not really anything in between. I wonder if this lasts as Web3 matures. My prediction probably is that it starts to become a lot more Web2 brands. But the one thing that is unique, I guess, is that Web3 is a bit more polyamorous in general. And so in that sense the company has kind of been depowered. Question for you related to that is, for anybody that's listening in that's a Web2 growth marketer, what do you see as the three to five differences as one enters the Web3 sphere? This is a great transition because I guess this example of personal brands is one of them. Definitely. I think there are four main foundational challenges when we think about Web3 growth that really are what Web2 growth leaders should be thinking about when they enter the space. The big one, as we just mentioned, is definitely identity. Within the Web3 space itself, a lot of on-chain activity is pseudonymous, and which is broken down into who's a whale versus who's a crypto native. So it's still like very basic in terms of our understanding of identity, which can be complicated as a Web2 growth marketer. He's used to being able to know everything about you. I think another one is communication, too. The way that you communicate with people is different. Web3 communication channels are still very nascent. And so a lot of things are still being done in a Web2-like fashion. Those are the big ones that create different types of environments on the identity piece and then the communication piece. And then the third, I'd say, is community. When you think about Web3 growth, a lot of it centers around community. And I think that that's for a number of different reasons. The big one, obviously, being a lot of Web2 strategies have already started saturating, and Web3 people are very sensitive about ads and user targeting. But what this actually creates in my mind is a very different style of growth that's much more personal, which, back to the connection about the personal brands, and authentic and different. And so I think that this is paving a new path that 
is important, very important in Web3 growth today. But I personally believe community-led growth will be the future of growth in Web2 as well. So if you're a Web2 growth leader thinking about making the jump into Web3 growth, yeah, it's not Web2 or Web3. The strategies that are being used now, I think, are early experiments for how everyone's going to be doing growth in the future. Also, you should try to join Safari. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting. Communication is such a mess. So many different channels. By the way, for anybody dabbling into Web3, one software, and I think I mentioned this to you, I forget if I haven't, text.com, phenomenal software, superhuman for messages. And in Web3, you end up on Telegram and Discord and Twitter and LinkedIn, and this thing centralizes it into one place and then also has the concept of archiving messages. Are you on text.com? So I posted meeting something like this a while ago on Twitter, and I think it was you who posted about text.com. I signed up for their waitlist, and I don't think I ever got off the waitlist. So if the text.com founders are listening, let me in. <laughs> yeah, I have that exact same pain point too. I got onto that the same way I got onto Farcaster, by the way. You just DM the founder. The trick. I got into Farcaster that way too. So I appreciated that tip. I'll have to do that for text.com too. I had one other thought that came to mind. I think you had a tweet or it was in a Safari call where you kind of pointed out we're at the maturation of the internet where SEM's gotten really expensive, SEO's gotten really competitive, and so people have moved over to community. And I thought that was really apt. And then Web3 ends up being the tools to do that, provide community benefit. It's very interesting. We've seen a lot of interesting new models come out of that as well. Of The internet today has gotten to this point where there was the promise of personalization at scale from mining all this data for consumers, but I think we never really got there. Most of the like mass communication that I get inbound from advertisers, marketers, pretty basic, not necessarily catered toward me and doesn't make me feel closer to the brands either. Some people do cool marketing activations. And so I think the community growth also like takes us into this different sphere of more personalized direct relationship with a brand that we haven't seen as much of, at least not in like a really authentic way that comes with ownership in past spheres of the internet. Makes sense. I'm curious to get your take. So Web3 moves a mile a minute. It's always interesting. Again, I thought Safari had been around for a year. I guess it's only been around since February. It's crazy. I'm curious when you reflect on the last year or eight months or whatever the relevant applicable period is for you, what are two to three events that stand out as things to pay attention to, particularly in the field of growth marketing? I think there are two for me. And the first touches on a lot of what we're just speaking about for what I'd say is the end of Web2 growth. I don't know if you saw Netflix's Q1 earning report when it came out, all Web2 marketers were talking about because last Q1 in 2021, they spent around $500 million to acquire 4 million new paid subscribers. So that's $125 CAC. That's reasonable. But this Q1, they spent the same budget and only acquired 0.5 million new subscribers, $1,000 CAC for Netflix subscribers. I don't think Netflix's marketing team sucks or anything, but many people looked at this and was like, this is the canary in the coal mine a really strong indication of what's coming that this highly scalable Web2 marketing has really come to a natural saturation point. And I personally don't see a way back from that. Remind me, so this is which period versus which period? 
So this was Q1 of this year in 2022 versus Q1 of last year. And I guess the other thing they had going for them in Q1 2021 was that it was, depending on where you are in the world, but it was thick of COVID. Well, it's still kind of thick of COVID. It wasn't 2020, right? It wasn't 2020. One year into COVID. Right. California was in lockdowns at that point, right? Yeah. Canada was totally in lockdowns. And so I guess at that point, it's probably easier to acquire people to a streaming service. So that's one. But an ADEX difference, that's pretty high. Yeah, that's crazy. What's the other one that you're going to mention? So the other one for me, I mean, I think you could name a lot of the really interesting Web2 brands that have entered Web3. But I'm actually going to touch on a more boring one, a more boring Web2 brand that entered Web3, which I thought was super, super interesting, which is, I don't know if you heard about Pearson, which is one of the world's largest textbook publishers. They announced that they're planning to sell their textbooks as NFTs. And their CEO mentioned a Pearson textbook is actually resold by students, student to student, up to seven times throughout the lifetime of that textbook. You just think about like being in college. As soon as you have your textbook, you take class, try and like resell it to another student. You have no use for it anymore. I just thought this was a really interesting challenge. We see this with artists of they only capture the value of the first sale of their song. But there are also a lot of old school businesses like Pearson that they only capture the value of the first sale as well. And they don't get secondary sales or any of those other types of mechanisms on reselling of certain items. That made me rethink where different industries could go, especially those that there are a lot of transactions that happen after the initial sale of certain items. It's not just digital collectibles. It's not just music. It's not just art. There are textbooks. There are different pieces of furniture. There are lots of interesting things that might have secondary sales in the future that pay royalties back to the company, which that's an interesting model I hadn't even been thinking about. I was very squarely in the collectibles for NFTs space and and less so thinking about some of these more boring old school industries. Totally. In their case, by the way, now I'm just curious about the tactics. So is the thought that if you resell your textbook, the NFT should follow? You give them the textbook and you give them the NFT? Or is this like a PDF NFT of the textbook? What's the story? From my understanding is that you don't get a physical textbook anymore. The NFT is an ebook of the textbook. You get all the information you need, you consume it, and then you resell the NFT to the student that wants it for the next class. That's interesting. It's interesting because I don't think that's going to work very well. In the case of NFTs, people care about the status of having the OG real NFT. Nobody cares about having the OG Pearson textbook. That's not how students are thinking about that. But it's a different type of market. I agree. Nobody cares about the OG Pearson textbook. If you buy the textbook for 100 bucks and then you sell it for 50 and Pearson gets 3% and then the next person sells it, the textbook is definitely going to decline in value every resale for sure. And no one's going to want the OG But it's just interesting to me to think about a textbook company getting some portion of resales into the future and how important or not important that will be for their future business model. Another one that I thought on that thread, old industries getting into Web3. Another one that I think is going to be interesting is, it's a pretty obvious one, but ticketing. The reselling of tickets is such a painful process. But there's an interesting dynamic at play, which is that all of the ticketing companies, any company that sells tickets, 
doesn't want to make reselling easier because they oversell. And that's how like planes do it. We've all been at the airport when they're like, who wants for $500, go home and fly tomorrow and blah, 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 blah. I find it an interesting case of innovator's dilemma because per your point, you could take a cut of resales and solve this problem. So instead of overselling, you just take a cut of resales and then you're going to be net even. But yeah, you know, we're used to working consulting. I can imagine being in one of these 20,000 person companies and you're thinking about, do you go on to NFTs where you're going to lose resales? And that's like a guaranteed loss of 20% of your revenue. Yeah, it's going to take a while for people to get there for sure. I think it's super interesting, all the use cases, especially that really old industries could come up with for new revenue streams. So definitely agree with you on the ticketing front as well. Something I've been thinking about, because the tools we're building relate to community-driven growth. And so something I've been trying to think about is, what does this landscape look like two to five years from now as it started to mature beyond this cottage industry that we're in? I'm curious what you think the Web3 MarTech landscape looks like, and potentially call that just the MarTech landscape as Web3 starts to become a bit more mainstream. So what do you think that looks like? And within that, what do you think are the most interesting new segments that potentially weren't so interesting before, but now are pretty interesting? For at least the next two years, I think that the marketing technology landscape is going to look pretty similar to how it does now in terms of the way I think about marketing technology is there's attribution, analytics, CRM, channel-specific tools, communications, probably just competitive intelligence. So I imagine that will look quite similar. Like people, are, as we alluded to earlier, are going to need to spin up more Web3 native communication tools and what's that going to look like and how's it going to play nicely with your Web2 marketing systems. In terms of the areas that I'm most interested in, I would say one is just around Web3 data. I think that Web3 data and data platforms are really interesting because in some ways, Web3 creates unprecedented transparency of company revenue, users, customers, and transactions are public. And this data is open and composable. Anyone can capture its value, theoretically. Obviously, there are companies that are spinning up now and need to be spun up in the future to make it more accessible for the average non-engineering, non-technical user. But in many ways, growth leaders will have access to data they never really had in Web2. And so I think that the combination of Web2 and Web3 data and the combination of Web2 and Web3 identities is definitely an interesting space where we'll see a lot of marketing technology players enter. But another one that I think is coming and is coming about in the way of community-led growth is we're seeing a whole new wave of social commerce and community tools coming together in interesting ways that I don't think I'd really seen before, at least in the West. There are interesting examples of social commerce in China and other places in Southeast Asia, but we haven't really seen it elsewhere yet. But I think that a lot of the tools will rise to think about how do you create direct relationships at scale through personalized CRM? How do you facilitate group purchasing decisions? among different small groups of people. There are different Chinese marketers and case studies that have done this. There's a $20 item, and if you get five of your friends to buy it with you, then it's $12.99 for each of you. Different direct-to-consumer experiences that we don't really typically see. But I think that there's also a larger conversation. What is community-led growth going to look like at scale, and what systems are going to need to be spun up to support it? And I think that that is where we'll see a lot, a lot, a lot of innovation 
in terms of the community side, but also how do content creators and other creators get value along the chain instead of just large Web2 ad platforms. There are a lot of different areas that I believe will be disrupted in the marketing technology landscape, which will be largely based off of the new strategies that people will be using in the years to come. Makes a ton of sense. On the latter point that you made around social commerce, are there a couple examples that potentially are less known about, but you've noticed and you think are particularly interesting that exist today? One model is the way that a lot of influencer marketing is done today. There'll be like a brand that'll say like, we're willing to pay $30 referral price on this $100 item. And there will be all these influencers that the way that a lot of attribution works today is last touch, last click attribution, which basically means whoever's link was clicked to actually purchase that item is the one who gets the money. But we know anecdotally from like consumer purchasing behavior, you don't just see an ad and then you like buy the thing, read a blog post, you see the ad, you see another ad, you do this, you do that. And then you might Google search it, click on an ad and buy the thing. You might actually just see the third ad, but from a different company after the influencer showed it to you and then you buy the thing. And so there's not a great way that all the different parts, and especially as creators really rise up, there's not a way for all the different people that contributed to that purchase get value. And what I'm seeing in terms of another element of social commerce is if you have four different influencers and a user that clicks links from four of them, and then they purchase on the last one, in today's world, only the last one gets the sale. But in new models that I'm seeing, each of those influencers that had a link clicked from a specific user that resulted then in a purchase by one of them get a portion of that revenue rather than just the last one. That's quite cool. And I guess if that attribution is on chain, then you can see, for example, when did that wallet eventually make the purchase? Was that after these other attributions? That's very interesting. So I think we'll see multi-touch attribution come to fruition in a way with individual creators and influencers that we haven't really seen yet today. So a lot of what I expect with marketing technology is one trend that was going on remixed with another one. And we kind of see that in a lot of different areas, like community-like growth was starting to become popular. Then it just got like remixed with Web3 and became this whole other ecosystem of ideas. Social commerce had been going on, but now it's getting remixed with, well, the creator ownership and creators getting more of the monetization than just the really big creators. So I think there are a lot of interesting themes that are getting mixed together that will then create new tools to support those strategies. Makes a lot of sense. Very interesting. So my goal with these podcasts is to try to keep them to 30 minutes. So far, I haven't been super successful. But I guess one last question to leave you with is, and I think this is an interesting question to ask lots of smart folks, crowdsource interesting people, I guess, who are the two to three people that you want to praise by saying you learn the most from them in Web3 growth and beyond? That's a really hard question, but I think that I'll have to show my individual community members. So I have three of them that are coming to mind right now. One is Matias Honorado, who leads growth at Axelar Network. He was in our first batch and informed a lot of the ways that I've thought about community building by giving really honest feedback at every turn. Yeah, that like didn't hit or this did. I think that the community could use that. But really being 
what I would say is the pulse of the early safari community that drove a lot of the direction that we took it in into the future. The second one is Thomas Pan, who is an absolute content machine. He's exposed me to a whole new world of culture and brand through NFTs, and he's a Web3 growth leader and content creator in his own right. And the third is John Wu, who is the head of growth at Aztec Network. He has an incredible talent for breaking down extremely complex subjects into really simple anecdotes. I don't know if you saw his podcast on cartoon avatars, but it was just a phenomenal way of defending Web3, but also breaking down ZK proofs and other things in simple terms. And I think that what we need more of in the space is people like John, who can take these what are extremely complex blockchain technology things and make them simple and approachable for the average person. And I feel like for the most part, we haven't quite gone there yet. There are a lot of us attempting to explain blockchain one-on-one and others to our friends and family. But the more we can have people like John who can break down these complex things and have anecdotes that other people share, I think we'll take the space forward in a really meaningful way. So those are the three early community builder, content machine, and be able to break things down well. I've learned a lot from the three of them and so many other Safari members too. Here, here. And I couldn't agree more with the last point. It's a bit of a cottager's industry right now. And I think we could all do a bit more to try to make it a bit more transparent and approachable. Sometimes we do quite the opposite. <laughs> I realize I didn't use any sound effects this whole time, but I want to thank you for coming on. So I will ignite the crowds to clap you on. sound effects are great i should use more of them i need to get into the habit all right well thanks man and look forward to seeing you again in discord and shooting the shit more no this was fun thanks for having me and i hope that people receive it well as well Mm -hmm.